Revelation chapter 3, and we're starting at verse, what is it, 14? 14. I have had a look at the verses, by the way, just before I come here, you know, I just can't remember if it's 13 or 14. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot, sorry, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll leave the reading of God's word there. Keep a hold of your service sheet with the verses on because we'll be, as we do, referring back to bits and pieces as we go. Uh, this today marks the final uh, message in this series we've been working through over the last eight weeks, a series called Status Updates, where Jesus, the risen, glorified, resurrected Lord Jesus, appears in a vision to the Apostle John and gives messages to seven actual historic churches uh, dotted around Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And perhaps if uh, you put yourself in the position of the church that we just read in Laodicea and you've just read the first six uh, messages to the churches, you might be thinking that Jesus has saved the best till last. In fact, this is the only church out of all seven that seems to uh, not have an obvious threat from outside. It seems to be that things are going pretty well in Laodicea and so perhaps they were expecting some kind of commendation from Jesus who saved them the best till last. They thought of themselves perhaps as the, the model church but as we'll go through the passage and see uh, as you probably picked up already nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to Jesus status updates. Um, I, I must admit I experience something myself very similar each year around April. Um, I get my uh, email from Her Majesty's Revenue and Custom to do my tax return and so I spend what seems like years on the website going through filling out all the little boxes putting in my numbers about how much I've spent and all this kind of stuff uh, hoping after all that work eventually I get to click submit and await for the final screen in anticipation and I'm hoping for good news I'm expecting at the very least no tax bill because I've paid bits already through the year. I'm even hoping deep down in my heart that I might even be fortunate and blessed enough to have a tax repayment, that the government owes me money. Every year I have such eager anticipation and yet every year shock and disappointment enters my heart 
when I realize most often than not I have more tax to pay than I thought I should do. Anyway, the same kind of issue seems to be at play here in Laodicea. They were expecting a good outcome from Jesus' status update, and yet, as we'll see, they got it severely, severely wrong. Before, though, we delve into the specifics of this particular message, it's good for us to get our bearings on the church, a bit of historic context to sort of set the scene uh, so we know roughly who Jesus is speaking to. And the historians will tell us uh, that Laodicea, this city here, is one of the richest cities in the then known worlds. Uh, they, they, they themselves, the city, boasted a very strong financial district, kind of Canary Wharf of the ancient Near East. They had a booming textile industry specializing in glossy black fabric. They also had their own medical school showing how affluence and well-off they were. The medical school, by the way, uh, was famous for its development and treatment of eye ointments for various eye diseases. And we'll see why that might inform some of the words we'll read in a few moments. Anyway, as a sort of pointer to how rich and strong this city was, we see that in AD 60, so about 20 or 30 years before this uh, book of the Bible was written, AD 60, there was a devastating earthquake, and yet because there was so much money swilling around the city, they were able to rebuild themselves without having to apply to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. They didn't have to apply there for a loan. They were able to build themselves up with their own finances. We have an economically strong city, but, and again this will come into play later on, their major weakness was their geographic location. Their geographic location. Laodicea was not in a natural spot for a city, uh, the reason being that it had no water supply of its own. And so it had to get water piped in from a distant supply from Colossae, which is a, a nearby city. So economically very strong, but not a natural spot for the city. That's where we're at with Laodicea. So let's then turn to a little more of the detail about what's going on in this message that Jesus has brought, this shocking message, to the church, the status update. What is his status update? One of the reasons uh, it was such a shock, I suppose, to, to hear this is because at the outset, the church themselves thought that things were going great. If you look down at verse 17, this is Jesus sort of putting words into their mouths, but Jesus is saying, look, you say, this is the church, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Seems that they're doing really well of their own accord. The church accounts were very strong, they're in the black rather than in the red. Lots of resources are available to the church, no doubt. They're growing numerically as a church. They're probably even doing lots of good ministry in their area, in and around the church itself. Thriving programs. They could do whatever they want to do. That just seems to be like a great position for any church to want to be in. I wish and I hope one day we will be in a position like that. The church is no doubt part of the wider culture of the city, reflecting the values of the city. When the city thrives, the church thrives. When the city's rich, the church is rich. And so the church are expecting a clap on the back for a job well done. But imagine their disbelief when Jesus starts 
to give his status update. And as we've been thinking, it's not what they were expecting. But Jesus starts, as, as we've seen every week for the last uh, seven or so weeks, he starts by reminding the church who it is that's giving the message in the first place. And the details change depending on the situation in each church. But Jesus says in verse 14, these are the words you're about to hear. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is who is giving this message. This is someone who speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Jesus' words are binding. He is the Amen, especially because he is the beginning, the ruler that is, or the, the most important part in all of God's creation. He is supreme over the church. And what he is about to say carries weight because it is true. And as we've seen again in several churches in this series so far, he goes straight for their works. He says in verse 15, I know your works. And don't forget on the surface, their works are no doubt really good, really flashy, probably very advanced and very slick compared to the other churches in this letter. I know what they are, says Jesus. But what he sees, he does not like. He says, they are neither cold nor hot. Historians point to the two other cities in the vicinity of Laodicea. You've already heard of one, Colossae, uh, which is where the water supply came from. The water in, in, in Colossae uh, was drinking water. It was wonderfully cool, refreshing water that you could drink, quenching your thirst. But it's freezing. Likewise, the other city on the other side of the, the, uh, the valley was Hierapolis. And this was famous or known for its hot springs. You know, the sort of stuff that comes out of the volca volcano. If you've ever um, been to... Iceland, they have these sort of hot springs, you know, the water's been underground for thousands of years and heated up and it's full of sulfur, stinks. But I tell you what, when you get into it, it's, it's boiling hot, but it's lovely. It is, it is relaxing, it is healing, and it's filled with all these minerals that are great for your skin and for your general well-being. You can't drink it, but you can certainly bathe in it and uh, allow all of the tension to float away. But Jesus here is saying to the church in Laodicea, your works, you, you people, your church, you are neither. You are not providing cool refreshment and for the spiritual thirst in your city. Neither are you providing the sort of deep healing for your city. Instead, he says, you're neither. You're just a, a lukewarm pile of nothing, insipid and worthless. He says, you are vile to me. You are disgusting to me. I want to spit you, he says, out of my mouth in verse 16. Now, the Greek word here that's been translated as spit is actually even more strong than spit. Spit is quite, uh, quite nice in some ways. Uh, but the actual Greek word behind it is emeo, which means vomit. Your works, says Jesus, looking at this church, are so despicable, so disgusting to me. I just want to spew you up. It is so bad. But this is only just Jesus getting going. He's just said about how distasteful their works are. But then he carries on in verse 17. We've just already seen in verse 17 how the church has a high assessment of itself itself. 
But as we'll see, it's far from reality. According to the faithful and true witness, you're none of those things, he says. Instead, you don't know, but you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, blind, and you are naked. These are all symptoms of the same disease. This desperate state that the church is in. They think they are strong, but they are weak. They think they're rich, but they're poor. They think they look impressive, but in the eyes of Jesus, they are pathetic. This is so ironic because externally, this church is the strongest of the seven. And if you or I could get into a time machine and go back and do a tour of these seven churches, this one is the one that would impress us the most, that would be outstanding in in, in, uh, what it looks like externally, the things they're doing, the ministries they have. And yet, according to Jesus, they're in a desperate state. And again, we have the final nail in the coffin. Not only are they in this wretched, desperate, pitiable state, but down in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. As if things couldn't get any worse, we see here that Jesus, standing outside the church, knocking, You know, sometimes this verse is used in a sort of Christian evangelistic context. You know, Jesus is calling and answer answer him by opening your heart to him, and that's fine. But that's not what this verse means. Here we have Jesus stood outside the church, knocking on the door. You can see the status update then for this church is far worse than their greatest fears. They thought they were going to get commendation Instead, out of all the seven churches, they are the sickest, most desperate church. We have a church that's doing well on the surface, multiple ministries, fancy tech. They sing about Jesus, they talk about Jesus, but Jesus is not in the church. He is outside. Seems to be they were getting on fine without Jesus. They didn't need him in the first place. Jesus has left the building. Let's let's think a few moments about how a church can become so desperately sick and yet not even realize it. Spend a few moments just delving down, asking ourselves the question, how can this happen? What's going on here? See, the bottom line in this church is that it's all about wealth. Or more accurately, it's all about value. It's all about what the church values most out of everything. And it seems to be that the church here in Laodicea that we see values economic strength, values their bank account, values their prosperity more than anything. None of these things, by the way, are are, are a bad thing. It's not bad for a church to have healthy finances and impressive structures. That's a good thing. But the problem is, when the church sees their bank balance and their resources and their structures as their greatest asset, their highest worth, if they think that's what makes them great, if they think that Jesus is just an add-on to what they're already doing, then they are a sick 
and desperate church. Their eyes are too low. They've grabbed at things of lesser value. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in, in an essay he wrote called The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that Christ, when he looks at the church, he finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says we're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, rather like an ignorant child that wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It seems to be that in Laodicea, we have a church that is far too easily pleased. They have been settling with mud pies when Jesus has offered them infinite joy. You see, this affects us not only as churches here and now, obviously also it affects us as individuals who make up churches, especially as, as we live in a reasonably uh, affluent part of the world in the Western society. We're very susceptible to some of these things that we're reading about in Laodicea. As people, we far too easily set our hearts and our hopes on things of, of lesser value, sometimes good things, such as financial stability and a rewarding career and the success of our family. We focus on these things and find our value in them rather than on the offer of infinite joy. Sometimes we can find our value, our, our, set our hearts and our hopes on destructive things as well. It needs to be said, obviously. Addictions, harmful behaviours, that kind of thing. But either way, we can all fall into the trap at Laodicea. We can all content ourselves with mud pies when the offer of the holiday at the sea is there for us. Let's take it maybe slightly more personally. We're going to ask ourselves a diagnostic question so that rather than just hearing all this theory, we can start wondering and asking ourselves, is it me? Have I somehow settled for trinkets rather than the treasure of Christ? Or even as a church? So here's a diagnostic question, or rather a statement to think about. Christian uh, philosopher called Francis Schaeffer states it like this. I'm kind of paraphrasing his, his words. He says, imagine if you, if you go to the Bible one day and you open it up and imagine that when you do that, every single reference to prayer and the Holy Spirit vanishes. It's not there anymore. If that was the case, says Schaeffer, what if anything, in your life would change. No reference to prayer, no reference to the Holy Spirit. What if anything in your life would change? What if anything in our church would change? So let's apply this diagnostic question to ourselves. What would change if there's no prayer and no Holy Spirit? What would change in your life? See, if nothing changes in our lives, if nothing changes in our church, 
If we just carry on regardless, we don't need the prayer, we don't need the Holy Spirit, then we are well on the way to developing this life-threatening disease that we see here at Laodicea. By the way, this, this applies to you whether you call yourself a Christian or not. It applies to everyone because we are all capable of finding ultimate value in things that were never intended to bear that weight. And so, as a people, we seek value and worth in lesser things. Too easily, we contend with mud pies. Our desires are too weak. So I wonder about you. Have you detected something of the spirit of Laodicea? Well, as we've seen with every message, no matter how good or how harsh or how scathing they are, in every message to every church, there is a solution. There is grace available to every person. Jesus says himself in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and rebuke. I'm doing this, he says, out of love. This is why I'm drawing this stuff up to your minds. I'm giving you an opportunity to turn it around, says Jesus. Even in verse 20, there is great tenderness in his words. Behold, he says, I stand at the door of your church and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. I will eat with him and he with me. There is love in these words. There is tenderness from Jesus waiting, calling, wants to win back his people. So we have a solution in these verses. Let's look first of all at the how. How do we do this? How do we come back? He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. That's very pure. Gold that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus already knows you people, you, 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 this city, you have pride in your banks, in your economic sector, but yet come to me for that which is more, far greater in worth. You pride yourselves in your textile industry and in the strength of commerce. Come to me for that which can clothe you. You pride yourself in your medical school, but come to me for that which can heal you. I supply greater riches than all of these, says Jesus. Come to me for these riches of greater worth. Value me above all else, says Jesus. See me as your greatest treasure. Be zealous, he says, and repent. Sometimes when we hear this word repent, there's a certain emptiness that maybe comes into our minds when we hear it. We've, we've mentioned repentance quite a lot over the last seven or eight weeks because it's there. It's in five out of the seven churches, a call to repent. And if you have heard this word before, uh, it often comes with a lot of baggage. Repent. Um, sometimes we can, we can think of it in, in mechanical terms, some sort of cold and grudging thing, spiritual exercise that we have to do to repent, a necessary evil, we think. But that is not how Jesus understands repentance at all. In fact, uh, Thomas Chalmers, who's an old preacher from the 19th century, an old Scottish preacher, 
has a really great illustration to help us understand what Jesus is getting at when he says, be zealous and repent. Chalmers, I'm just sort of paraphrasing his words here. He says that for some people, repenting is thought of of giving something up. It's like the demand to stop loving certain treasures. Repentance, says Chalmers, is like asking someone to set fire to their own house. Why would you do that? Why would you give up something that you love and treasure and value? And he says, perhaps, you know, if a person's life depended on it, they might set fire to their house with painful reluctance. But, he says, they would indeed set fire to their house willingly if they knew that a new property of tenfold value was instantly going to emerge from the wreck of the old one. What's he saying? Chalmers is saying that repentance is not simply stopping loving something, whether it's your wealth or your family or your prosperity or your security or any number of good things. It's not that. But, he says, it is turning to love Jesus more than everything else. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, tells us that Jesus Christ possessed vast riches and honour and glory in heaven. But yet he set them aside when he came down to earth. He became a servant, it says. He became worthless. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And on the cross, we see that Jesus, for us, became wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked as he was nailed to the cross to die. But the reason the good news is good news, it is not simply an inspiring tale of someone's good death back sometime in history. It is good news because Christ did it for you. He gave up his riches and became poor so that you could turn from your poverty and become rich. His riches for your poverty. And when you see what Christ did, when you take it to yourself by faith, when you receive him, then you will see him as your greatest treasure. He will be for you your highest worth. He will make those lesser treasures in your life that you hang on to. In comparison, he will make them look like mud pies in your hands compared to the riches of who he is and what he's done. When you look at the gospel and when you see Christ and when he becomes your highest treasure, it'll change you in two concrete ways. And this is where we come into a land. It'll change you in two concrete ways. When you see Christ like that, when he's your highest treasure, number one, it means you will view your resources in a different light. When you see him as your highest treasure, it means you will loosen your grip on your money. Instead, you will be free to be generous, to give sacrificially. You'll be free to give of your time and your talent and your money because Christ is your greatest treasure. He provides everything you need. And that's the kind of attitude that we are trying to cultivate here in our community at Foundation Church. When we look at Christ, we are generous 
with our resources. The second concrete way then this will change you, number two, is that it will bring you to see your need for prayer and the Holy Spirit. When you see Christ as your highest treasure, you will notice a new devotion to prayer, a new awareness of your own need, a new reliance on the Holy Spirit for all that happens in your life and your church. Remember what Francis Schaeffer said a few moments ago. When you see Christ as your highest treasure, prayer and the Holy Spirit are central to your life and to our church. To the one who hears his voice and responds to him, Christ promises to receive, to eat together. And finally, he says, one day we shall rule together as I overcame and rule with my Father. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation of yourself, of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have not left us in the darkness to wonder what it is you think or feel about certain things. You have made yourself so clear in your word. Father, we thank you particularly for this message to the church at Laodicea. May you help us here today to hear your word, to hear the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And Father, for those of us who maybe identify more closely than we would like with the spirit of the church at Laodicea, for those of us who hang on far too tightly to the things of this world, no matter how good they are, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see Christ, as our greatest treasure. We may know all about him, we've maybe heard the stories, but yet he hasn't enlivened, inflamed our hearts. And so I pray just now, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, inflame our hearts with love for you when we look at the cross and when we see that you gave up everything so that we could become rich. Father, change us by the power of your Spirit change our attitude to our money, focus our hearts on prayer. We thank you for showing us these things and help us to respond now as we sing uh, this final song, focusing on the amazing wonder of the cross. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs>